So, we're going to start with something that's not on the board, just because I've had too many people ask. The Nephilim. All right. <laughs> so, on your sheet, on one of the sides there, you have uh, Genesis 6, the first few verses. So, let's read through that. We'll look at it, and we'll talk about it. None of this is dogmatic, but it is what it is. <laughs> the curiosity killed the cat. All right. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right. So <laughs> I tried to be sneaky and just just kind of breeze over this the last, last Wednesday and on Sunday as well. But everybody came wanting to know. So you have in verse 2, you have this language of the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And so in my view, I see the sons of God there as the godly line of Seth. However, I'm not dogmatic on that because there's a lot of other other theories about what they could be and that they're somehow tied to this verse about the Nephilim. So the sons of God, uh, and also a valid translation that's held by a lot of people, are that they are like tyrant kings. Um, Some people think they're good kings. Some people think they're bad kings. Uh, in the Bible, it's legitimate. Sometimes uh, kings are called sons of God. Um, and then another translation is that they are angels. And then you can get into the weeds big time with the people who think they're aliens and things like that. Uh, but, but all of those translations are out there. Um, however, the sons of God as angels does have uh, a lot of textual warrant. And, and so, I mean, so does the kingly language. But as angels... It, gives an explanation for the Nephilim. Um, So the idea is the sons of God, uh, in Job, that same language is used to refer to angels. And uh, and so the idea is that somehow or another, angels came down to earth and uh, took on the form of flesh in some way or another and were able to, to reproduce with women. So they take women as their brides and then produce their offspring, which some say is the Nephilim. Now, later, that idea of Nephilim is going to be used, or I can't, I think it's in, I want to say it's in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, not in the Hebrew, but that the idea of Nephilim is tied to uh, Goliath and this race of giants. And it could be that that's legitimate giants, uh, could be that's like NBA player giants, you know, just people who uh, happen to be very tall. Uh, <laughs> but the idea is that 
angels sleep with men, with women, men meaning humanity, and they create something else. And that something else is the Nephilim. But the issue you have says in those days and also afterward, um, the Nephilim were there. And so the Nephilim appear to be there after the flood. Uh, but that could be because angels came down and did it again. Um, the, um, you certainly have giants after the flood, but that doesn't mean they're crazy Jack and the Beanstalk giants. It could, that could be NBA giants, right? We, we have giants today, Andre the giant, so on and so forth. So we don't know exactly what Goliath was, but with the idea of, of angels being what come in and cause even greater corruption, uh, it seems these sons of God are no longer sons of God the way they once were, right? They're fallen angels at this point. It's what it appears to be. They've gotten astray. They've left their, um, they've left their mission that God has, has placed them on and, and went after their own desires and going after women. Now, that is plausible. Certainly follows the pattern in Genesis 3 where a serpent that is Satan, who is a fallen angel, is a leading man and woman astray. Uh, the issue that a lot of people have with this translation is that um, it might let man off the hook a little bit for their own sinfulness. That it seems angels are more responsible for the corruption of the earth than mankind. Uh, whereas God is clearly angry with mankind. No doubt he's angry with demons as well. Uh, keep that in your mind. Demons are angels, just fallen angels. Um, but so could be that. Another theory is with these tyrants um, that that holds up because if you look at uh, the Nephilim were on the earth, verse 4, in those days and also after, afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Well, this sounds like they're not bad, right? It sounds like they're, they're good kings, maybe, uh, mighty men. A lot of people tie this verse to Greek mythology and, you know, these gods among men, men among gods type thing, Hercules, stuff like that. Um, so men who are mighty men who are godlike but are heroes among men, um, which tends to lean itself, lend itself towards not so much being the product of demons but of something good. <laughs> um, so you don't necessarily have to associate this with something bad, right? Nephilim doesn't necessarily mean bad, um, though it could. And we know that the kings of earth go bad because Noah and his family are the only ones who are preserved, right? So even these mighty men uh, end up being men at best who fall into great sin and deserve to be wiped out. Now, mighty men appear again in the Bible. Giants appear again in the Bible. And so it could be that. In 1 Peter 3, even when Noah is brought up again, in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, it talks about Jesus proclaiming to the, um, the spirits who were in prison and the ones who were somehow tied to Noah's day there from that. And so that could, that people look at that and say, see, that's the sons of God that that's Genesis is mentioning. It's these spirits, these evil spirits that are now in prison. Jesus pro proclaims his victory over them uh, as he goes to the cross and is getting ready to 
be resurrected and ascend into heaven. All possibilities. So, I don't know. (laughs) For me, a very simple reading of the text is that you have a godly line connected with Abel and then Seth. And then an ungodly line connected with Cain. And Eve specifically calls Cain man. Like, God, God has given me a man with Cain. Uh, but then with Seth, there is a direct tie to God because right after Seth comes on the scene, the next thing it says is, is in, in those days, the men called upon the name of the Lord. Um, and this is what the sons of God do insofar as we are sons of God. We are children of God. So you have to look at the whole Bible either way, right? You can't just look at Genesis and figure it out. You either got to look at Genesis and Job and First Peter. And Jude mentions these kind of angels and uh, sons of God type thing too. Or you can, so you can do that and interpret the Nephilim as fallen angels. Or... You can interpret the Nephilim just as giants, in which case you still have to go up to uh, the passages where Goliath is mentioned and things like that. So you're still not just getting that from Genesis. Or you can go like me and see, okay, how does the Bible refer to the people of God? It often calls us sons of God. In Luke chapter uh, 2, I believe, when the, the genealogy of Christ is being laid out, It traces Christ all the way back to Seth and then to Adam. And when it refers to Seth and then Adam, it says, Adam, the son of God. Right. And so that that is still plausible language. No matter what, you're having to use biblical theology. You can't just proof text it. You can't just look at one passage or a couple passages. You got to look at the Bible as a whole. Now, the important thing to remember is no matter how you define Nephilim, it does not change the point of the story. Right. The point of the story. And when I say story, I mean historical narrative. The point is that God rightfully wipes out mankind, except for Noah and his family, who are carrying on the line of the promise tied to Genesis 3.15. So the gospel story that carries on from Genesis to Revelation does not change regardless of how you interpret the Nephilim um, or the sons of God. So I had a a visitor Sunday come up and give me a post-it note with all the verses that mention the Son of God. And I'm like, thank you. You know, like, (laughs) I appreciate that. I hadn't looked at that all week, you know, like, (laughs) but but there, there's historic grounding for all of these positions, minus the crazy stuff that's now popping up with aliens and stuff like that. Um, For the last 2000 years, people have held that. Either the Nephilim um, or the son, forget the Nephilim, either the sons of God are the, the line of Seth or angels um, or something else. Um, but that, that doesn't change. As long as your interpretation of that doesn't change the point of the story, you're good to go. Okay. Any questions about the Nephilim? Oh, of course, the elder. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's where you could say, one, if it's the, the offspring of angels and men, just means they did it again after the flood, and that the ones who were wiped out were replaced. Um, I struggle with that, because that means angels 
Well, I don't know. Maybe not. I was going to say, it seems like angels fell again and did it again. Um, but I suppose it could be existing demons that did it. So that doesn't necessarily wipe that out. But I still struggle with like heavenly beings looking at what's going on and seeing how God wipes out all of humanity tied to what's happening there. And they're like, let's do it again. But maybe maybe that's what they wanted. Right? I don't know. Jeff? <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, but one of the, one of the uh, things they throw out is that they're trying to disrupt the bloodline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and that is at the heart of what Satan is trying to do again and again, right. leading up to the cross. And even the cross itself is an act of let's snuff out the Savior. Uh, of course, that was part of God's plan. Uh, but and it all is for that matter. Um. But yeah, good good point. Amy, will you turn down my mic just a bit? Thanks. It's still too loud. So you can kind of leave those two out. If you go from number five and number six, and you know, but, but I guess in page three it says then. Yeah, yeah. So what's the then? Yeah, I wouldn't leave verse two out. I'd just leave Nephilim out. <laughs> but no, I, and that's where I think, you know, no matter how you carry it on, it's important for them to see corruption is creeping in at an even greater level, right? And so that's why verse 2 ties to that. So whether you define it as angels or the line of Seth or whatever, what you see is uh, depravity is increasing all the more, and the earth is being covered in corruption and violence, and it's tied to that. So whether the, the problem is the righteous marrying the unrighteous or whether the problem is angels marrying the, the women, you know, the children of men, daughters of men, rather. Um, it's all leading to the same problem, which is greater corruption. Chris? And you're, I mean, by using the word yoke, you're quoting Corinthians, which just points to the fact that even us as New Covenant Christians are still under that same command. It's not interracial marriage that's the problem. It's, uh, you know, whether you're marrying a believer or not, you have to be yoked to another Christian. It doesn't matter what tribe, tongue, nation, whatever, but long as they're a true believer. Um, and so all the time, though, you know, I'm having to do counseling with people or whatever or talk with people because they did not marry a believer you know um now there are people you know like my wife and i who we were heathens when we got married neither one of us were believers but the uh but god is kind and gracious um but for instance i mean with kim having us you know pray for jay now kim same way she was converted after her marriage but uh, she's married to an unbeliever and it's hard you know it's really hard um, so it's God's kindness in telling us not to be unequally yoked. He's trying to protect us and to help us from that because it leads to corruption, yes, in the world, but that corruption will play out in your own life as well. Um, and so God, God's word is meant for our good and his glory always. All right, anything else on the giants or demons or aliens or whatever there? Huh? 
Sure. That, that is, that's certainly possible, but we know for sure that when you get to Noah, you know, he has three sons, and one of them is corrupt. One of them immediately falls into great sin, and from his line comes Canaan, which sounds an awful lot like Cain, right? And so that's the idea. The corruption, the sin carries on because Noah is not the new Adam we need, right? He comes on the scene as a picture, as a type of Christ, and as a new, better Adam. And he's, he's a little better than the Adam we had before, but not better enough, right? He's not good enough. We need Christ. Steve? Right. Yeah, I, I think, though, the point is because of what's happening, my life-giving spirit is no longer going to preserve man. Uh, instead, I'm going to bring judgment upon them, right? Because what happens after 120 years is the flood. Um, I remember my first read of this when I was a young Christian was like, oh, so this is how you go from having a genealogy where a guy lives for like 900 years to having more of an average lifespan to 100, 120 years, if you're lucky, type of thing. Um, obviously, I don't believe in luck. Just, it's a figure of speech for anybody looking at me. You don't have to email me. Uh, uh, <laughs> providentially, if God uh, allows you to live so long. <laughs> but, the, uh, but what he's saying there is, is 120 years to the flood. And so God's spirit is what gives life. Obviously, the spirit gives us eternal life. But God gives us life and breath and everything, uh, even basic physical life. And so the idea is the Spirit is not going to abide the way he has been, preserving life on earth as it has been. But now judgment is going to fall, and all of mankind is going to be wiped off the earth, save Noah and his family. All right, let's get into Noah and his family. So, all right, you have the promise in Genesis 3.15, I will... I didn't write put, I was rushing, people were talking to me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, I didn't put thee. Just ignore the, ignore the, just sorry. <laughs> and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise the seal. So this gospel promise tied to Jesus, that he is Jesus, and he's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And, uh, and we see that Eve, or Adam rather, believes this because he says man uh, called his wife name Eve because she was a mother of all living. So God is taking, or Eve rather, is taking God, Adam, if I could talk, Adam is taking God at his word about Eve. He believes this, which is why he names him Eve, or names her Eve. And then God covers Adam and Eve with garments of skin, seems to be an animal sacrifice, uh, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. Now, we don't have the word covenant here. But we do have the word covenant for the first time in Genesis 6, 18. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, I pointed out Sunday that this word in the Hebrew, um, it means more established, but it's really the word for confirm. And the idea is, there's another word in Hebrew that is used to uh, refer to starting a new covenant. or It usually says to cut a covenant. Blood is shed and a covenant is created. 
this word is the one that is referring to a covenant that already exists. And so even though the word covenant has not yet been used in Genesis, we know from Hosea chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, that God's word says Adam was in fact in covenant with God, right? So God makes a covenant with Adam, essentially do this or don't do this and die, do this and live, enter greater life and blessing, so on and so forth. Of course, Adam fails and death and the curse of the law and all these things fall upon death and all of creation because he is a a federal head. He's a covenant representative for all of humanity. Uh, But again, God responds not just with covenant curses, although this is in a covenant curses passage, but in the midst of these covenant curses, he responds with grace and promise of blessing uh, and the promise of a savior. And so essentially what Reformed theology has said uh, for, for the last however many years is that the covenant of works, the covenant of creation, God's covenant with Adam in the beginning, gives way to a covenant of grace. And the reason it does that is because there is a covenant of redemption. So covenant of redemption is what happens before the foundation of the world where the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit not only uh, decide to, so this is dangerous language because God doesn't actually just decide, right? He's God, he ordains, but forgive me for using human language to help us understand what God did. So don't, yeah, don't get too technical on me and email me about my heresy. Uh, <laughs> send all emails to Eli at AOL. No, I'm just, <laughs> no, um, In eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit always existed in perfect harmony and love with one another. And out of their glory and goodness and perfect sufficiency, it overflows into not only creation, but redemption. God is omniscient. He knows all things, and he knows good and well that Adam and Eve will rebel against him if he creates them the way he he did. But he decides to do that anyway because creation is not the main point. The main point is the glory of his son. And Christ is glorified primarily and ultimately through redemption. And so before the foundation of the world, before God ever created, he not only decided to create, but he decided to redeem and recreate. So as God is laying out the initiative to create, redemption is tied directly to it. And so this is what's been known as the covenant of redemption where where God the Father says, essentially, this is how the Puritans lay it out. So if this sounds heretical, I'll send you the Puritan quote. But they essentially say, God the Father says, we're going to create. But if we create, they're going to sin against us. And Jesus says, it's okay. I will go and I will pay the penalty for their sin so that we can save them. And we can be their God. We, so now it sounds dangerous. I can be their God is how it says it. One God, three persons. See, it's just so, so easy to be a heretic here. Uh, so that the triune God of the Bible can be their God and they can be his people. And the father says to Jesus, well, if you're going to do that, my son, it will cost you everything. Because not a drop of my wrath can go 
unpaid and unaccounted for. Justice must be served. My wrath must be poured out to the last drop. And Jesus says, so be it. I will take it all for our people, right? And that's the covenant of redemption where God in his great love for us decides to save us. So you think about Ephesians 2, um, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Uh, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's amazing is when you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to and, and the Lamb's book of life is referred to uh, as existing before the foundation of the world. But the book of life is referred to as the Lamb's book, as in the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. The reason God can love sinners like us before the foundation of the world is because God the Son agreed to be slain for sinners like us before the foundation of the world. So as far as God is concerned, justice would be served and had been served because God cannot lie and God cannot fail. And so if God has set his mind to do something, it will be done. It is as good as done. We see that language in scripture all the time. One of the most beautiful places is in Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, after in 28, where he says, um, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Um, and then it talks about for those he uh, predestined, those whom he called, those who he justified, those whom he glorified. And it's all in the past tense, even though not a single one of us have been glorified yet, because if God has ordained it, it is as good as done. He doesn't fail, and he doesn't lie. He who promises faithful, right? That, that's, that's the idea, and that's all tied to the covenant of redemption. So God is not caught off guard by Adam's sin. He knows good and well that Adam's going to sin against him, and that's the whole point all along, is that it's a means to magnify the glory of his son, and for us to be even be an even greater communion with God. So my daughter bought the book the other day, Paradise Lost. And that's often how people refer to the fall, right? Paradise was lost. But paradise was not yet what it was meant to be, right? Because Adam and Eve are meant to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the whole earth. The garden's meant to take over the earth. It's supposed to be one big, massive Eden with greater glory and blessing than we could ever imagine. Adam messed that up. So, yes, a version of paradise was lost, but not the paradise that was to be. And the paradise that is going to come now in light of Adam's failure is even more glorious and grand than what Adam would have ever ushered in. Because now we not only know God as creator, we know him as savior and that was god's plan all along it's one more way for him to magnify his attributes i mean you think about when moses asks to see god's glory god responds by proclaiming his name and what he says is is that he is a god abounding in mercy and grace in steadfast love slow to anger 
right? That doesn't get communicated simply through creation. But right? if you have a sinless creation that never needs mercy, you don't see that. But when you have sinners like us, and God is patient with us, and long-suffering with us, and steadfast in his love, even while we are sinners, well, that magnifies the glory of God in a way that just creation doesn't, right? And so this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. So because that plan existed, when Adam breaks the covenant of works, or the covenant of creation, or whatever you want to call it, when Adam breaks God's law, instead of God doing what he does with everybody else in the flood and just wiping them out, which he would have been totally just to do, he responds by giving Adam grace, by giving Eve grace, and by promising the world grace through an offspring of Eve. Right? And then that sets us on the trajectory for the rest of redemptive history throughout Scripture. Jeff? When were the angels created? Great question. <laughs> I assume at some point in the creation narrative. In the creation. Yeah. <laughs> the heavens and the earth, right? So, yeah. So, I don't, I mean, obviously the scripture tells us they cannot be saved, but the ultimate answer is just because God chooses not to save them. I like what you're saying. That makes sense to me, that they've, they've beheld God in his glory and re rejected it, rejected. which is what baffles me. I don't know how to explain that. How do you see God in perfection and say, nah, there's something better out there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that the Bible refers to, the Bible uses that language. It talks about the elect angels, which then imply that there are non-elect angels. Yeah, I mean... Romans 9, yeah, I mean, ultimately it is for God's glory. And Romans 9 is going to tell us essentially uh, that vessels of wrath exist for the good of vessels of mercy. Uh, so same way, we would not appreciate God rightly if we only knew him as creator, but now we know him as savior. Uh, we would not appreciate grace rightly if wrath was not in existence and displayed. So if it's mere, merely a theory... That we know there's a hell out there. Nobody's going because we're all elect. But you could have, you know, it's just in our human nature to belittle it. And, um, and I mean, that's a product of the fall as well. But the only answer I can give you is for God's glory and his good pleasure. He chooses some and chooses, um, and chooses not to save others. Um, it, what baffles me is that he would choose to save anyone. 
especially a wretch like me. Um, and our go-to typically is, oh, that's unjust for God not to save everyone. But it's if we're not getting the weight of the fall when we think that way, because it is utterly insane that God saves anyone because of how sinful and wretched we truly are and how good and gracious and glorious and holy he really is. Um, and so that's what makes it all, all the more baffling is that he saves anyone and he does, or that he creates anyone knowing that we would go, you know, awry and go in rebellion against him. But he does this. Uh, and ultimately, God's word is going to say the secret things belong to the Lord and the things that have been revealed are given to us. So that's, that's where we can hang our hat is we don't know. And what we do know is that none of us have a big E tattooed on our forehead, right? So none of us, we don't know who the elect are. Um, and even the way scripture speaks about us, uh, like even within the church, those of us who are claiming to know the Lord and have repented of our sins and, and trusted in God by faith, uh, there's an aspect where time will tell, right? Uh, this is how the covenant works. As we continue to fight sin, pursue holiness, and seek to trust and obey God, uh, those who are truly elect continue to do so. And those who are not eventually fall away, right? And you've got uh, in the parable of the soils, like you've got four different examples and only one of them's true, right? Only one of them is truly elect and holding fast. Um, and so you can appear to be a Christian for a time and not be a true believer. You know, I mean, in some sense you are a Christian, right? You belong to the covenant community if you've been baptized in, but does that mean you're a born again believer? Not necessarily, right? Time will tell. Um, so all that to say, we should be very careful about ever boasting that, well, I'm elect and you're not. <laughs> uh, that's not really the type of thing the elect says, is it? <laughs> you know, we, we are recipients of God's amazing grace. And God, in his grace, says all who turn from their sin and trust in him will be saved. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's like, that's the call. Not, well, if you're elect, come. No, if you're elect, you'll come, so come. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the idea. Okay, that's your fault. You started us off that track. <laughs> no, you brought up elect angels, and then we go there. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Um, but um, I wanted to say this tied to your statement. I don't understand how you dwell in glory with God and see him and enjoy him and then decide to walk away from that. Um, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's what I mean. So Satan and the angels that followed him. Yeah. Right. And that's. That's just baffling to me because he saw true greatness and, and turned away from it. Um, oh, yeah. It doesn't surprise me this side of the fall. But, you know, if you don't have a sinful nature, and then that's where you go. That's what surprised me. Chris? Absolutely. Yeah. But at least Adam can say, well, I was tempted because of them. Like, But Satan is the author of temptation. It starts within him. So it, it just baffles me. But... Uh, we know the ultimate answer is because God ordained it to be um, for his glory and the good of his people. And so that's what happens. So 
God, because of who God is, in his mercy, in his grace, um, he decides to make a covenant with man and to create. And God is so gracious, even in the original covenant with Adam, right? God blesses Adam and puts him in the garden, then gives him the commands, right? He doesn't just throw him in the garden and say, look here, do what I say. No, he's gracious and blesses him and showers him with grace even before Adam needs grace as far as redemption from his sin. There's no sin yet. Uh, But when Adam does sin, instead of simply responding in wrath and fury, God responds with grace and mercy and promise. And so that covenant of grace is tied to that original promise in the garden. And in Ephesians 2, for instance... Starting in verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to, listen, the covenants of promise. So multiple covenants, single promise. The idea, what Reformed theology has said, whether you're talking about the 1689 London Baptist Confession or the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Savoy Declaration or whatever, what so many have said is that within these historic covenants, God's covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant in Christ, you have one promise tied to this covenant of grace. That promise shows itself at first in Genesis 3.15, And it gets clearer and more robust as you go throughout the whole of the Bible. Uh, But the promise in a word is Jesus, right? Or gospel. Um, That Jesus is going to come, live, die, rise again, be the new, true, better Adam, be the savior of sinners like us when you look to him by faith. That's the idea. That's what's tied in this promise of an offspring who's going to come and save the world. That offspring is promised again Um, more clearly, as we'll see this Sunday in the Abrahamic covenant, and even more clearly again in the Mosaic and the Davidic, right? He's the son of David that's being promised. And then ultimately fulfilled and very clear and magnified through the new covenant in Christ, right? So all of that is that one promise through many covenants. So it's the covenants, historical covenants of promise, but all of these historical covenants are tied to this one promise of grace. So the language that the reformers and others use was that it is um, the same substance gospel under many administrations. So when you think about administrations, uh, don't think about, you know, administering medicine or something. Think about presidential administrations. So Lord willing, we got a new administration coming in. Uh, this November. <laughs> and uh, yet, with that new administration, you have the same constitution, right? So you have that same general substance of this is the America we know and love, yet with a new administration leading it, applying it, living it out, that type of thing. That's what's happening throughout all of these covenants. So you get greater detail and more robust knowledge as you work through them. But they're all working towards the same thing, the redemption of God's people, uh, new heavens, new earth, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. All of that's tied together. And that's all tied to this one promise. And so that's why you get this language of God confirming his covenant with Noah. 
not just starting a new one. The covenant's rooted in what he's already promised to Adam, and what he promises to Adam is rooted in what the triune God promised to himself in the covenant of redemption. Clear as mud? Now, let's talk in the last five minutes about Noah and baptism. <laughs> I saw that tie. <laughs> so, you have in Hebrews 11, Noah in the hall of faith. And so basically we see that Noah is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're told in Hebrews eleven six, 6, uh, without faith it's impossible to please the Lord. Um, yet then in Hebrews eleven seven, we're told that Noah had faith, right? You see his faith happen, or you see his faith in action, rather, through his obedience to the Lord. Um, you see that again and again throughout the Bible. Um, faith is tied to faithfulness, but it's a fruit of the faith. Um, so we know Noah is saved ultimately because he's faithful. So at the end of that passage we read in Genesis 6, it says in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. So what, how did Noah find favor? Well, on the one hand, it's by grace alone, right? Grace is uh, unmerited, ill-deserved favor. But on the other hand, what God's grace does to us is cause us to be born again and to trust him by faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Noah is a man of faith because he's a man who has received God's grace. And that's where that favor comes from. But then you get this complicated passage in 1 Peter 3 that I get to just mess with your heads on and then dismiss. First uh, Peter 3, starting in verse 18, which I think is on your sheet there that I don't have in front of me. So trying to find it in my Bible here. The, uh, <laughs> he says, uh, for Christ suffered once for sins. Sorry, I'm going off memory while I'm still turning there. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's a gospel, right? Basic gospel. Then gets complicated, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That, those Nephilim things, sons of God, I don't know, whatever. Uh, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so we know these sons of God that get corrupted, whatever they are, whoever they are, and all mankind outside of Noah and his fam family were judged and condemned, rightly so. But Noah and his family, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, hang on, Peter. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What are you talking about? Well, keep reading. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, that language tells us that the water's not actually doing it, Right? The water's not really washing you. Uh, but insofar as it is an appeal to God for a good conscience, insofar as it is accompanied by faith and God's grace, 
it saves. But if, if, if grace isn't there, and if faith isn't there, then baptismal water is not going to do that. Um, it has to be linked to Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You must be united to the victorious Christ, not only through baptism, but also by faith. We see in Noah's family that Noah did indeed have faith. And Shem and Japheth seem to have true faith. Ham did not. He falls under curses. What does Ham do? Anybody remember? It's a weird story. Right. And he seems to either mock him, belittle him, laugh at him, something. What he doesn't do for sure is honor his father. Right, but the other two do. Like they walk backwards, they cover him up, they don't want to dishonor their father in any way, they want to respect him. Now, you know, Noah Noah was slamming back some wine and passed out drunk. But they don't really address Noah's issues there. There's issues, they're like, well, we're not we're not commending that or anything, but there's this bigger issue that we want to talk about here. And so Noah's not perfect, but he does have faith. But Ham shows his lack of faith through his disobedience to God's law and dishonoring his father, which is a commandment, right? Um, And the bigger issues there with the heart issues that are behind it. And he goes astray and and Noah, you know, immediately calls down covenant curses upon him and he falls into even greater sin as time goes on. But what, what you see there is that being on the ark did not equal eternal life, right? And Peter's telling us being on the ark is an image of baptism, right? So uh, just to mess with with Baptists, I always say uh, those who are uh, um, baptism through submersion, through immersion rather, uh, they all died. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But those who were sprinkled live. Uh, So maybe the Presbyterians got a point. I don't know. (laughs) But the... The, just it's fun it's laughter it's okay <laughs> but the um no but even then baptism so you have noah's family they are all indeed sprinkled and they're baptized uh in these waters and they're saved in the ark that's ultimately pointing forward to christ right the ark's the way of salvation through the flood jesus is the way and the truth of life in the life, the way of salvation for us, the way to get to the Father, John fourteen six, But it has to be accompanied by faith. And so the baptism of Noah and his family points to two different things. If you don't live up to this baptism of God saying, you are my people, I am your God, you belong to me, you are to glorify me. If you don't live up to that, this baptism points towards judgment. You see those in the flood? That is what will happen to you and so much worse if you rebel against me. But if you trust me and you obey me, blessing, glory, eternal life, all of this is there. Covenant curses, covenant blessings are both a reality there. And that's what Peter's getting at with our baptism. So the ark and the flood and the baptism that Noah and his family experienced points forward to the same reality that we see in Christian baptism. Because we see in the waters, like baptism represents a funeral, right? Dead to sin in the water. 
raised to newness of life in Christ. But do you, are you saved the moment you're baptized? No, not necessarily. Could be. I mean, in God's providence, that might happen. But it's not because of your baptism, right? It's because of God's grace. And you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so that baptism is a picture of the gospel reality that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. You are to glorify God in your body. And if you live up to that reality, by faith, blessings. If you rebel against that reality in your sin, curses. Right? So, Matthew Henry's father, most of you have heard of Matthew Henry and his commentary on the Bible. But Matthew Henry's father would often say, I would grab my children by their baptism and tell them to behave. Right? And what he's doing is he's saying, Remember who you are. God has laid claim to your life. You carry the name Christian. Live up to it. Die to sin. Pursue holiness. And glorify Christ in your life. If you do, blessings. If you don't, and you fall into apostasy, curses. That's the same reality of our baptism. And so... All that to say, God did not make a, st- make a mistake in baptizing Ham, right? He, sh- he didn't say, he didn't make a mistake in saying, you know, I should only save two of Noah's sons in the flood or from the flood. No, God's giving us an illustration through that. And he's doing that for a purpose, showing us the same reality exists for us today. That baptism can point towards blessings or judgment based on the posture of our heart and our life. Are we trusting and obeying and following Christ? So, this is the lesson we are meant to take away from Noah tonight. There's so much more to get into. uh, And we're going to get into the Abrahamic covenant this Sunday. And I'll give us, you know, a big... I don't even know how I'm going to do this this Sunday. I've got to catch up. I've got to give the context of Hebrews... I mean, Hebrews. Genesis um, 10, 11, into 12. And then I've got a cover in my sermon... Genesis 12 through 22. So just get comfortable. <laughs> Erica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, it, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely going through. I'm probably going to spend more than. Yeah, I'm probably going to spend a few weeks. <laughs> I'll probably spend a few weeks on the Abrahamic covenant. You missed the Nephilim. See? <laughs> but the, uh, all that to say. This stuff is so foundational. It's so good for us. What happened at the beginning of creation is what patterns the Christian life today. It's what lays it out. And, and I, I see Christians caving on this, Christians caving on this left and right. You know, whether you're talking about a, a literal six-day creation that they are embarrassed about or the flood that they're embarrassed about. Do not be embarrassed by God's word. It is the foundation for your life. Trust the Lord, submit to his word, and live for his glory. That's where blessings are found.